love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny Chisholm, and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined by co-host Allison Lewis-Tobes, and we're bringing you a conversation with Nakia Zavala, the Culture and Language Director for the Santa Inez Band of Chumash Indians. You'll hear about her connection to the mountains, and how the Chumash were affected by the arrival of European settlers over the last few hundred years. We'll also hear about how the Santa Inez Chumash celebrate winter solstice, giving heed to not only natural cycles, but also communal peace. It was an honor to be in conversation with Nakia, and we hope that her perspective is a gift to you on your journey of understanding your neighbors here in Santa Barbara. I'm here today with my co-host, Allison Lewis-Tobes, and Nakia Zavala, who is the Culture and Language Director for the Santa Inez Band of Chumash Indians. She has a master's degree in cultural sustainability, and Nakia, we're incredibly honored to be in conversation with you today. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the history of the land that we call the Greater Santa Barbara area, which has been stewarded by the Chumash people for thousands of years until it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We're humbled to be in conversation with a member of the Greater Chumash community today as we collectively grow towards common understanding and active compassion. Nakia, would you be willing to share your preferred pronouns, how long you've lived in Santa Inez, and what's something that you love about calling this land home? So I was born at the Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital in San Inez, and I was raised on my reservation, went to school here locally. And for me, living where I live in the San Inez Valley, what makes it home for me is the mountains. Mm -hmm. And we are right here in the valley, so the mountains that surround us have always been something I've looked up to and I've always seen there. And as I learned more about my culture, they became more important to me because those were sacred peaks in which our people had gone up to. And so the meaning of them, besides the visual, has become more deep. And, and this is my home. Hmm. What makes the mountains sacred for your people? Well, before I can speak about what's sacred about the mountains, I have to say where it comes from. I am the fifth great-granddaughter of Maria Salares. She's a Somala Chumash woman that lived here on the reservation and was the primary informant for John Peabody Harrington that came through this area and interviewed different Chumash people. She spent a lot of time with him and recorded um, stories and genealogy, really everything that we know about being Somala Chumash people we give to her for taking the time to work with him in her 80s. And that's where it all begins for me and how my lens has changed several times with viewing the land, not only here, but along the coast of Chumash territory and the inlands into the San Joaquin Valley. Her stories take us to those places. It takes us back in time before our really at contact with the missions being established and how the people lived in the time before. So her uncle told her a lot of stories about what life was like for our Chumash people in the old times. 
with her stories and her teachings, I'm able to look at certain areas and have a better understanding or she familiarizes me to a place and where our ancestors once walked. When I look up to the mountains, as a young girl, they were just always there. The mountains were there. You can look up and, and there they are. There would be snow on them during the winter. There'd be poppies on them during the summertime and lupins and beautiful native flowers. But when she teaches us, she shows us just how much more is there. So some of these mountains here represent a place in which our ancestors had gone to, to go put up burial poles for those that have passed on, special meanings of them, and how to behave and what type of protocol to have when you go up onto the mountains. So that really changed how I interacted with some of the spaces I, I go to and how I carry myself. Can you speak more to how to behave when you're on the mountain? Sure. There's a, a mountain here called Grass Mountain. A lot of people climb up it. And our grandmother told us that when we're up on the mountain, that you're not supposed to speak loudly, that you're supposed to speak in a whisper, soft tone, and just to be aware of how you are walking up the mountain and to not be loud. So that's an example of what, how she explain some of these old ways in which our people roamed around this land here. It sounds more like a, a mindful and respectful way of interacting with the natural world around us than just passing through it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you've placed yourself in a lineage of oral tradition and history. And Oftentimes that doesn't really happen in, in, at least I can speak to my own family. There can be a certain sense of individualism in a lot of American society where each person is their own person. And yeah, of course we have our, our family and our ancestors, but those stories don't have much bearing on our life because we can always change the course and do what we want to do. But I really, really appreciate how it, it seems incredibly important to you. And I imagine that it must, it must feel like a huge blessing to be, to be part of lineage. And as a culture and, and language director for the Santinez band, that sounds like a, a, a big role. And I'm interested to hear what, what that looks like. Sure. Yeah. Just to speak to the importance of genealogy in your family line, and we can't go back and change history or the things our people have gone through, but I encourage all people, when we go talk about our culture, our Chumash culture, everyone comes from somewhere. And the importance of knowing your family and the history and the things that your family has gone through, whatever culture you come from, there's always a story to tell. And sometimes we get lost in that in these modern times of just living for today, which is important and to be, to be present. But you have to look back to completely know who you are, maybe why you behave a certain way, or maybe things affect you differently. And that's really important, no matter whether you're Native American or wh whichever, it's important to go back. And I think that's a missing piece of, of today and now. And family really tells you that. So a lot of people get fascinated and they're like, oh, yeah, I, I listened to what you said. And I found a great, great grandfather that 
was part of this movement or participating in some historical event that happened and it just didn't occur to them to look back and to, to dig a little deeper. Not that you'll find everything great, but at least you've taken the time to, to get to know those people from your family. It really is the foundation of the work we do here. And it's for me as a culture director, we come from a people that were colonized and we have to go back to the ancestors. We have to go back and look at those stories and those teachings because we were part of several different events that were basically created to to culturally cleanse us as Chumash people. So everything I do has to come from them. We are an evolving people. There's th- times where we create new songs and we have to continue because we still have to be present. But with those ancestral teachings, we know that we're guided by them. And not everything that was done, we can bring completely back. That's just just how it goes. And the programs we do here are for the Somala Chumash people. So we are the San Inez Band of Chumash Indians here in San Inez, California. And the department was created about 13 years ago. And I always say to acknowledge those families that were carrying on traditions and taking the time to look and find those ancestors for those teachings, that families were were practicing culture here on the reservation prior to the department being created. That's just a time when the tribe decided to put together an official department. But that there are families here that were very much so practicing the culture, did everything they can to to bring that back into their their families. And that that also spread out to other families here on the reservation. So with that said, the department's always been focused on doing our best to really, the word decolonization just kind of bothers me because it lends so much, it gives colonization so much um, power over us. So re-indigenizing our space, re-Somalifying it, we use that a lot. We really want to try to do as much as we can to teach to live is really important to try to live as much as we can connected to our traditional ways of life. It's hard. It's hard when you teach the youth, when you're competing with things like sports and video games and those type of things. But one thing's for sure, what you see is within the people, the pride of who they are as Chumash people. And it can be a painful journey. Sometimes it's hard to, know you're you're Chumash, but you just had been so disconnected for so long and having to come back into that space. I mean, it's a journey. We were just talking about this the other day, me and my, my cousin, Kathy Marshall, who's our lead language teacher, the patience, you must be patient with this journey to um, bring this part of your, your ancestry back into your life and learning about the history and connecting to the land in a way where you're actually living off the land and the importance of gathering. And I think that in this day and time with, you can go to the grocery store and pick up food where our ancestors were out hunting and gathering. And that's kind of hard to relearn that when you're so used to everything being given to you or you can actually go get it, drive down the road and you can go to the grocery store and buy everything that you need where we're trying to bring back gathering during certain seasons the physical labor of gathering. I think we would be really surprised of how disconnected we all can be to, to nature 
and taking the time to go outside and and really pay attention to the seasons and the weather and how it affects different things in our ecology. But my ancestors, they had that down. That was their way of life. They knew when there wasn't going to be a lot of rain, it would affect the acorns. It would affect the deer. There wouldn't be that much water and obviously affect the fish that we went out to catch. For me, the work that I do is really, that's the foundation, is trying to support our people through ancestral teachings of who we are as Chumash people and connecting to our natural world is is really the core of it. And then, of course, our language is another huge part of the work that we do. But with that said, we're challenged with the same thing. Being Chumash wasn't a novelty. It wasn't an extracurricular thing. It was just who we are. Every single day, we spoke our language. Every single year, we had our winter solstice ceremonies. This was part of our life. And now, as colonized people, we are having to go back and find the time to make sure we're implementing that in in who we are. And I have to say that with the tribes back, and we've done such a great job, and the people have participated, they want it. They know that this is very important and critical for us to continue to grow and learn and resomalify our spaces as much as, as possible. Your life's work has been so much centered around upholding and preserving your language. How did you find yourself on the path, especially surrounding language and not just not just culture, but like digging deep? So I think for language, for me started, I thought about this because especially with this work, I think we minimize even being, for me, being a young girl and being raised in my culture to celebrate every little thing that we did when material was being held in museums and we didn't have access to it. And the work that my relatives and my father had done, by the way, he's not Chumash, but he's Comanche, but he married into the tribe and took a very strong interest in uh, bringing and researching different parts of our, our Chumash culture. Language for me, I started when I was a young girl, when I was hearing Chumash songs and probably not, not knowing really a lot of the words or what those songs were saying, but just the joy of hearing it and just feeling it inside of me. That's my earliest I can think of, actually, where did that seed get planted? And really, that was my, my, my father and my relatives that stepped up and started learning and dancing. And we were part of, I used to travel all over California, going to cultural gatherings, other tribal gatherings, and singing and dancing and sharing songs. So a language continued to evolve within me. And again, I think it's all connected to songs. And then we would have certain words, haku, hello, a little certain words here and there. And then I became a mother. And then years down the road, I, I worked for my tribe in different positions. And this opportunity came to work for the culture department. And just like everyone else, you just survival and working and raising my, my kids. And then we came across a gentleman by the name of Dr. Richard Applegate, and he did his dissertation on the Somala Chumash language, the first dictionary ever that was actually on a typewriter, typewritten. And the tribe found him and they came out with a dictionary. So we were able to produce a dictionary. And then sometime after that, we had some tribal classes and then that kind of went up and down as far as attendance. And then I 
grabbed some of that material and started teaching some youth classes for our camp while I was working for the casino, actually, in a management position. And I just really felt like this was my calling. I just felt really happy. My daughters were were not, they're probably in their teens by then, but I just really felt like this felt really good. And I was doing it as like an extracurricular kind of thing while I was working at the casino. And then I was teaching youth classes. Mind you, I didn't really, I did the best I could teaching it. And I ran to Dr. Applegate and he goes, you're not saying this one word right. <laughs> it was great. So anyways, we soon started an apprenticeship program. And we started doing a language apprenticeship program modeled after the Paiute tribe up north. Because what we found out was that not everybody could really learn a language that's not spoken anymore the way we were learning it. It was linguistically done. So it was really hard even to say the word ayatulatul, butterfly. Just learning a lot of words and just letting it roll off your tongue just felt so wonderful. It felt like it was felt like home. Like, wow, this is really neat. We're saying words that our ancestors said. And actually, what we're reading is what our grandmother left behind for us. So with that said, our apprenticeship program began. And six people were hired from the tribe. We were hired to basically say, we're going to just get in there and do the best we can and learn from a linguist. And it was hard. It was really hard. Linguistics is very dry. <laughs> it's important to archive language linguistically, but it's hard to to feel it because you're so worried about the construction of the language. And and it, it was hard, but it kept us all going. And so from there, our apprenticeship program turned into a teacher program. So at that same time, I was hired as the cultural director. So and then programs started coming out and we started expanding. So it's been quite the journey for us with language. We're not the only ones. There's so many tribes throughout the United States, throughout the whole world, actually, indigenous languages have. There are indigenous groups that have been colonized. And really, English and Spanish is the enemy of the languages because that's what we mainly spoke. My grandmother, Maria, spoke Somala and Spanish. We work really hard. Like I said, other tribes were having to figure out how to teach language not from the linguistic perspective, but to help people live it. And so there's all these different techniques on what tribes, indigenous people are doing to live their language more than just archive it and study the language, but to bring it really back. So we're living it, breathing it, thinking it. And it's been a hard journey because it's been taken away for so long. And I like to say sleeping language. It's not like it was dead because it's who we are. It's always been there. Really, it's always been there. If my grandmother took the time to work with Harrington, even though we didn't have access to it, to the notes, it was all sitting there waiting for us. It had been waiting for us to grab and, and bring back home and actually bring back into the community. The language component has opened up so much. Just our elders council Actually, my mother, Antonia Flores, she really pushed for certain reels to be translated. So Richard translated some notes, and it was quite a few pages of information about who we are that were never translated. So we have that information so we can review it, study, and, and really read her teachings and bring it to the community. I can keep talking about this stuff all day. <laughs> 
the story is such an awesome story. It's so powerful to think about how coming back to your language brings you back to yourself. And it helps you to understand who you are because you now have like access to the words that your your generations and generations of your family spoke. And it's it's deeper. Yeah, I mean, you cannot read enough of her notes and just keep going back and rereading it. And it's the work that we do. It's such great work, but it, we had to really accept the fact that our dreams and how we want to envision our community and really what we want to see is everybody speaking the language. We want to see it every part of everything of our community. But really what they tell us is that that's not going to happen in your lifetime. Matter of fact, I think it's like three lifetimes. You'll see a real huge paradigm shift in really for us. I mean, I, I hate saying this word, but really decolonizing our spaces and really like bringing in those old ways in speaking the language, thinking in the language. So the work we're doing is just setting up for the future generations. So we're part of that foundation that my grandmother already created. And we continue to build upon it. But it's not an easy road, right? And again, I just can't emphasize just, I have so much respect for language and culture teachers and people that are going back and grabbing onto those old ways and trying to apply it to who they are today. And not only that, but also trying to bring your community in to grasp it and, and to, to bring it back. You have so much up against you. You really do. And it's not like people know it or not, but it's just because we're so, we're living in the present. This is who we are today. This is the type of money we have today. It's not our traditional money anymore where we're trying to be modern day Indians, but yet still trying to grasp onto those uh, traditional ways of life. And it's just such a crazy balance and sacrifice. So when we first started, a lot of the teachers, they gave up Saturdays. Saturdays are like soccer games and you go watch your kids and it's family time. So they sacrifice family time to commit to learning our language. And so I know that for us, but I can just imagine other Native people, Indigenous people that really just say you kind of get bit by your own language bug, right? You're just kind of hooks you and you're just like, you want to stay engaged. You want to learn more. And it does take up a lot of, a lot of your time. It's not really, it's not a nine to five job for me. It goes much beyond that because for me, it's because it's who we are, right? So, and with that said, I can't even say I'm the best student with that because we all get caught up. And, and other things, raising our children, taking care of our parents, even trying to, do I go walk the dog or do I sit here and study? <laughs> so it's it's a huge commitment. And, and then there's a lot to say about, and I didn't realize this until I became more emotional about the work that we were doing. And for me personally, I can only speak for myself, but we would read those stories, those stories she would talk about how her father and her grandfather were treated in the mission system these things that are happening and she's talking about it. And it's really amazing because I, I put this timeline together and put like my great grandfather and my grandfather and then I'm sorry, my sixth or seventh great grandfather and then my sixth great grandfather and then Maria, my fifth great grandmother. And I just wanted to know during that time period where she's talking about like what was happening, what was going on, what was their world like? And really opened our eyes to see and to hear 
because the treatment of our people through the missions is, has been so sugar-coated. And to hear what she had to say coming from her mouth, she passed away in 1923, and what her uncle talked about, what her father talked about, you can't deny that. You can't question that. And I also figured out that this is such an emotional journey and I need to be careful of myself and to take care of myself as I'm reading these type of stories of treatment, you know, family members, and then to know of our whole people that were in the mission system. So it's not just a class, but it's just, there's so much embedded and it can be a really emotional journey. And I had to not deny it not just be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to read this. It's not going to affect me. No, of course it does. I'm reading things I've never read before. I've heard my parents talk about it, but I think there's just something to be said about reading it. And it's coming from her to Harrington to me. I mean, Harrington's the only person in between. Well, actually, I should say Richard Applegate because he translated it, but that's still, I don't have to worry about an orthographer or another archaeologist or anybody else that's translating that. It's pretty much in its most somewhat most peers form. No one's writing a book on it and then changing the stories that she's telling, you know, or no one's rewriting it and that has a biased opinion because they're Catholic. She's telling these very true, very true stories of the treatment and the other things that are happening on the land. And it's very, it can be really hard. So there's times when our us as teachers would stop and just say a prayer and just take care of ourselves. And again, it's not like this job that's just whatever. It's so packed with so much. And we're, then we're unpacking it one thing at a time and then have to stop. We were reading this story about where the, the houses were, like where the, our people lived at the San Inez Mission. And we were thinking, oh, I wonder if it's over here. And we were just trying to figure out uh, where it was at physically. And we just said, you know what, let's just get up and let's just go. And let's go walk over there and let's see where she's talking about. And let's try to figure out where the, where actually had the houses. So we did that. And what a gift that she gave us that we can just physically get up and go take a look. And she describes the land in certain places and we can go over there and, and go visit those spots and and have a better understanding. And really for me, it's like we're looking at this land now through her eyes. And that's just so cool. Because before it wouldn't be like how she explained it. And now I look at Gaviota differently. Gaviota Beach. That's a place where her and my Aunt Clara, you would go and gather mussels. So that's even more special to me. Because I know they walked along that beach and they're gathering mussels there on the rocks. So that connection is just so special. It just, it's so much more meaningful. And that's what we talk about when we when we talk about teaching our people. Really, it's her. She's teaching us and we're teaching them. And we're just helping bring those stories and her words back to life within the people. So we, we didn't have those notes for so long. I'm going to say maybe, oh, maybe eight years ago, we had got those translated, the those pages translated, and then we gave those, or the Elders Council gave those out to the people here. Those notes were sitting in the Smithsonian. Those were sitting somewhere <laughs> for a long time, and we didn't have access to them. That makes me a little upset. <laughs> yeah. But then again, I, I couldn't translate them, but, <laughs> well, we could try now. We, we can do pretty good now, I think. 
I have two questions for you. Firstly, you mentioned a bit of the the community and it sounds like encouragement that you get from having a similar experience to indigenous people across not only what we call the United States of America, but also around the world. And I would love to hear for listeners who don't maybe understand why you would say indigenous as opposed to native, this could, could be more on a definition level, but also on a personal level. What does it mean to you to be to be indigenous as you look across the world to indigenous people all over the place? What's maybe one common thread? One common thread is that we are the first people of the land, wherever, whether it's Hawaii, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and then North America, of course, has so many different tribes, but that you're the first people of that land. And more than likely, you were colonized by someone. Somehow your people have been affected by others coming onto your land. And it's important that we recognize Indigenous people across the world because those are common things that we have together. And so many times our people have been marginalized, or we are marginalized people. The importance in numbers and in supporting one another is so critical and important to the work that we do, especially with language and cultural reawakening or our, our, our continuing our traditional ways because we need that. We need that support. It's important to me when we look at language acquisition and see what the Maoris have done. They did a great program called the Language Nest. And here we are, we're so focused on teaching how we get educated in Western education system. And our classrooms that we learn in, who said those were the best classrooms? Being inside, inside these walls and learning the things that we learn. And when you talk about connecting to the land, well, how are you going to connect to your ancestral land when you're in a building? And it's completely not even relevant to what you're, you're wanting your people to put themselves in so they can absorb as much as they can. And so what the Maoris did, they created these language nests. And some of them are buildings and they're just beautiful. Their culture is all every part of that area and they have like outdoor areas that they have there that they teach singing and dancing and things like that but also language nests are created just to create that one space that will help really perpetuate and really affect a student in a way that they're learning as much as they can about their language and culture songs and so anyhow, it's great to look at them and see what they're doing and then we can apply those teachings to us because, again, we're colonized people. The way we do things is not how the ancestors would have done it, not close to how they would have done it. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves that because we do get caught up in these four walls. We get stuck in here because we think that's like the best way to learn. And then we apply these different teaching techniques that are not Somala at all. <laughs> and I just think there's a whole bunch we can learn from each other and support one another. Yeah. I love that you brought up the Maori people. I saw recently that there's relatively recent government representation. I, I saw at least one woman with the uh, moko, the face tattoo in, I think, parliament. And I just love how that that stands in the face of colonization because in the colonizer's culture, it feels inappropriate, but to the indigenous people, the Maori, that's a, a huge sign of, of respect and honor. 
And I love to see the representation. And then even recently in, in our own country to have Deb, I'm forgetting what her last name is, a Native woman who's now within our own government. It's incredible to see Indigenous people really being represented on their own terms in, in the governments of, I suppose, colonized governments of their lands. The second question that I had for you was, there seems to be a lot of importance of both being able to look forward and to look back. And you spoke of not loving the term decolonizing because it, it speaks of what we're opposing, but it doesn't really inspire us to where we're headed. And I love that you speak of the re-indigenizing or re the more specific, the better, of a specific vision of where we're going, not just where we're coming from. And a lot of people, especially I think probably with, with there's a social media platform called TikTok, I see a lot of people, indigenous people who are showing up in these spaces and there's such a beautiful sense of pride through dance and pageantry and music and so much else. And there's just this bold resilience. And I see that a lot of people, a lot of non-Indigenous people look at that and say, that's beautiful. But I think few people are willing to look to the histories of what came before and what Indigenous communities have been resilient through or from. And you've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation, or you, you referenced some of these stories. And I wanted to offer you a, a, a space to give a bit more of an overview of what what the Santinez band of Shumash Indians remember from what has happened in the place that you call home, if that's something that you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, I can share what I know. There's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot of sensitivity that needs to be given to my elders. But one thing I know is, is that our story is very important to us. Everybody has something in their past they don't ever want to talk about again or relive. And I think that's also really important to state because I think there's lots of discussion and uh, platforms for historical trauma, generational trauma, and those things that are really the effects of the original trauma. And it's important to move forward. So for me personally, it's important for us to acknowledge and we need to educate our ourselves and our children. But we also need to know that for me, this is important for me, is that I want you to know the history of our people. I want you to know what we've been through. And they deserve to know the truth, but yet to pull them through it. I think that's important because I think the anger, there's enough anger in the world. There's enough hurt and pain. And that's not even speaking of personal trauma that people may have gone through. And a person that has gone through trauma in her life, that it's important. The resilience is so important to your future generations of your children, your grandchildren, and to set that set that up for speaking from a family, and then for me, for the people. So I've never been one to really hang up on the past like that, but the education system has not done a great job of reflecting the history whether it's telling the true story of colonization, the original colonization from, from the mission system, and then the different parts of history. There was a time when California was part of Mexico, and then the statehood. Each one of those three eras affected my people in one way or another. 
And no doubt the missionization was the most impactful because that pretty much set it up for the rest of the history that goes along with that. But as we can see how the world went, at some point a colonizer was going to come to this beautiful land and claim it for theirs. So if it wasn't them, it was going to be someone else. That's kind of like my my feeling about historical trauma. And it's my understanding from my grandmother and other historical papers that were written, or I'm sorry, I should say journals from those people that experienced that time of missionization, uh, the treatment wasn't so great for our people. And usually when I do public education presentations, I think the best way to describe it is that it wasn't a revolving door going into the mission system. It was a one-way door. You only went in, you didn't come out. And when you did come out, it was because you escaped because of the treatment and the conversion caused people to run away, too much people to run away. And other natives, there's so many missions here along the coast of California and flee to the mountains to get away. And that's when they were hunted down and brought back into the mission and were shown or treated as runaways. And were they were an example for those who ran away. This is what will happen to you. My grandmother, Maria, talks about the alcaldes, which are like soldiers. And that was one of the, like, the defenses is, well, the priest didn't mistreat them. No, but they, they gave the orders and how to handle certain things that happen. And so those were their soldiers. And those are the stories that my grandmother has on her father and her grandfather is if something went wrong, this is how they were punished. And it wasn't good. It was, it was physical, physically abusive, mentally abusive. And their old ways of living were no longer there anymore. The conversion happened. My grand, our, let's see, our sixth great-grandfather, sixth, seventh great-grandfather, his name was Estevan, but they, but his Chumash name is Kilikutiyuit. So when Kilikutiyuit entered the mission, he was no longer Kilikutiyuit, he was now Estevan. So he had to get rid of his Indian name and be given this new Spanish name. And that's what he was to now be called. So it's part of that conversion. It's part of erasing their Chumash identity. They're no longer to participate in their old ceremonies. They had to learn a new way of living, which is really supporting the mission as slaves of the mission. The, the, everything, our people are every part of the missions. They built them. They sustained them. They were the slaves of the missions. And... I mean, that should speak for itself. And that's my grandmother's words. I don't know Spanish, but she said something like, in, in, in Slave de la Misión, and it's, they were the slaves of the mission. I mean, she's saying that in 1923, or like, I'm sorry, like 1919, mm -hmm. and when she's being interviewed. So who am I to question her and argue with her in how she's describing how her father and grandfather were viewed in the mission system and the stories that they passed down. I mean, that's powerful. 
I think, and the story continues after secularization, Mexico comes in and we think it's a great thing. You no longer have to live here. You can leave the mission. You're no longer slaves. You're not being kept here anymore. And now you're free to go. After years of being under the mission, in the missions, and I wouldn't say maybe all their traditional ways of life were gone. Some of it was there, but it was a different time. We were no longer using our, our traditional Chumash money. Our villages have all collapsed through the missionization of the people. So our very intricate and very, like every, every villages, were, the trade system was just very much intact. But the falling of one village affected the other villages around them. So it's really important to know that because you would think, oh, well, the Chumash people, they knew how to live off the land. They went right back to their land. They could do it. Yeah, but we all relied upon each other, our trade system. And so how it goes is the people came here and lived here, what is now the Sunniness Chumash Reservation. And I'm sure other people went and went to go work for the ranches because there was a lot of ranches now in the area. And they came here to live on the reservation. And during that Mexican time, the Mexican, when Mexican government was here, it was a lawless time. And it was a dangerous time for the people. And then the statehood comes, right? The first governor of California, and I don't believe his portrait is no longer hanging in the state capitol because he was very well known for his treatment for Indian people in California, bounties, and so on, on all California Indians. And then from there, once you're a statehood, so many different federal policies that affected our people, boarding schools. My grandmother went to a boarding school and actually ran away. There's a lot to say about that policy that was put in place. Another big cultural cleansing, taking children out of families' homes and putting them into these boarding schools to continue to colonize the people and pretty much erase the Indian. You know, and it goes on and on. What makes us unique as Native people is the fact that we are Native American and the first people of the land. But we're also uniquely targeted when it comes to these type of policies that were put in place. For the food, reservations were given commodities. So these are rations of food given out to families. And probably mark the beginning of things like diabetes and heart disease. And it's all flour, sugar, powdered eggs. And things like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. When we would get it, my sisters would always make fun of me because I would go for the canned peaches first. So I kind of hoard the peaches <laughs> with the government issued food. I mean, we made the best out of it. It fed us. I'm um, number four child of six. So it fed, it fed us, but it really does contribute to health issues throughout Indian country. And some tribes still get commodities today. And, and then we have something great like Indian Gaming that came along. And I say that because it provides funding for our programs and, and has allowed us to really live this American dream that was created by the, by the Americans, by the government. This is the American dream to get ahead and own a home and have all these things. And now it supports our tribal programs. And I'm able to do these things that are considered a luxury, which is having programs like we do. 
Uh, most tribes have to apply for grant funding and their programs last the distance or the length of the funding. But once the funding's gone, they're back to square one. And then sometimes you have these speakers and teachers that have to leave working this job and go back and find a full-time job doing something else because there's not adequate funding for their programs because the grant ended. So, and usually it's federal, federal funding that we get to support these programs. There's just not enough money. There's not enough money to help bring back the language and cultural programs that we need to be able to offer. And really it's because again, we're being Chumash was something our ancestors did every day. This is, we all have to work. Like I said, I worked at the casino. I had a management job. I did other work that had nothing to do with bringing back language and culture, but it paid my bills. It helped provide for my family. And that's important. Now that you are working with language and culture, and, and because you've already brought up the term generational trauma, I come from a, a community that talks a lot about generational trauma, having come out of the pogroms and out of the Holocaust to the United States. For you, when you're when you're digging into these really hard truths about your people's history, how do you take care of yourself? Well, if I feel like I want to cry, I cry. I don't hold it in. I think we just need to be present. And what we're reading and what we're experiencing, I pray because it's important. We believe in Nohalakuel, great creator, God. It's a higher, it's higher than us. It's bigger than us, and it takes care of us. And I look at my grandmother's teachings and try to do things how the ancestors did. We didn't burn white sage. We actually used coastal sage, and we used it, it in water. So we cleansed ourselves. We cleansed our body that way. So it's really important, especially when we're doing so much work in our language, Somala Chumash language, Somala Chumash culture, Somala Chumash ceremonies, that we go to those traditional ways of taking care of ourselves. If I agree with it, if I feel comfortable doing it, and I, I utilize those to take care of myself. I'm also very careful. And I need to know who I am that day and how I feel that day. Can I take on can I keep reading what I'm reading or do I need to stop and do I need to wait till tomorrow because I'm also dealing with all this other stuff for today <laughs> and it can be too much. So I think that you need to be very, very real with yourself and in, in know what you're willing to continue to read and what you're willing to take on and know when to go back to it. But I think for taking care of myself or getting up and walk, going outside, taking a walk, I just can't speak to how important it is that you just have to take care. Like you have to be mindful of where you're at because anger will feed anger. Hate's going to feed hate. And if you're not in that place because you already have anger about something or stress, you don't want to keep piling it up. I have to read those things. I want to, or I wouldn't. It's important that I read it as someone who has positioned herself to be a language and culture teacher that I got I have to walk that's my that's part of the journey is to walk through that so I have a better understanding that's how I take care of myself I'm just very mindful and and and, and careful 
very, very, very careful with what I read and how I take it in. And then you also have the responsibility as a teacher with how you teach that. How are you teaching your kids? Well, my children are different, right? Because those are my children. So I, I, nothing sugar-coated. I think they need to know. But I, again, I, I, especially my children, I teach them about letting that part go knowing that it happened, but to know that you don't need to carry it with you every single day, because that's already like, it's by your name, but if I even say I'm Chumash, that's who you are. That's already part of your family in your line, your genealogy. We talk about those things and we talk about not harboring hate and anger. And also knowing things like when it comes to religion, what man does, but doesn't mean it was God's will. We are only humans. <laughs> We're humans. A lot of cultures, and or if you are Catholic or Christian or whichever, that we all know that we are not perfect and that we will make mistakes. And that's why we have great creator. We have no halakweil. That's why there's God. There's a higher power that we pray to and we answer to. And, and it's important for me, for my girls to to do that and to, to let that go. And because we have too much work to do, there's, there's so much more we have to do and we have to stay focused. And so if we get caught up in that anger and hatred and that resistance to the point where it eats us up, then, then we're not serving ourselves and we're not going to be able to serve our families and in a way of just continuing in a good way who we are. And really I want peace. I want peace. So that's why I talk about talking about the history and then moving forward because we deserve that peace. Uh, we can only know what our our family experience in that time or our ancestors through their stories. Was I there? No, I wasn't there. I can just know what I read and it's not good. But I don't want what they went through to happen to that. What they went through was for no reason. And for me to be an angry Chumash woman and, and harbor that and then also speak that all the time, that would be disrespectful to my ancestors that went through what they did. And so that's the type of things I teach my daughters and try to pull them through that. And that there's so much beauty in speaking and singing our songs and trying to grasp onto what we have that is beautiful and empowering. And that's really important. What do you want non-Indigenous people who live in Santa Barbara to know about where they live? I think it's important for them to know who the first people were and are. So meaning the first people, the ancestors, how they lived, how they connected to the land, how we viewed the stars, that they can look all around them and everything they, they could they could switch their lens too to look at it through how the Chumash people lived. That's all I really would ask is just just get to know who the people were here in the beginning and the islands. There's so much to tell and appreciate. And then to show gratitude. I think that's really important. I think in this day and age when being a modern day Indian isn't just about even just language and culture, but we have our leadership that fight for our rights. We have so it's it's there's so many there's so many other 
other parts of being Chumash that we want people to acknowledge. So me, I speak for the language and culture, and but then we have leadership that fight for our rights, our land rights, and things like that. So I think if people know who we are, know our history, know what we've been through, because how do you understand the resilience piece if you don't know what we've gone through? And how do you understand why there are certain things we're sensitive about if you don't understand or have an idea of what our culture was even about? Yeah, it's interesting. We sometimes had gotten a lot of judgment on our names. Oh, what, how are they Chumash when they have Spanish names? Well, that's just a huge red flag going, well, you really don't know the history of California. You really don't understand how emissionization impacted our people or why my grandmother spoke Spanish to 1919. So I just take the time to learn, take the time to appreciate and have, have an understanding of, of who we are. That goes a long way. So that's educate yourself. And everything else should make more sense. <laughs> Especially when it comes to, sometimes it's political. There's political things we're having to deal with. And there's people that just have no idea at all. And we also can thank our education system for not teaching about really how unique Native American people are and how we fit within the government and the different policies that affected us and why why certain things are the way they are. Yeah, it's so it's such a, a gift to have to have your voice today. And the woman that I was fishing for her name earlier, her name is Deb Holland. And she is a member of the House of Representatives from New Mexico. And yeah, just to see the voices of indigenous peoples at every level. When we look at other groups, we, we obviously know at this point that that it's important to have women representation at every level, in, in every system, in every level of government. And I have hope that we're starting to see a push towards representation of Indigenous people in governments, and that that's just a first step towards towards equity, towards justice. That's by no means where it stops. <laughs> but it, it's hopeful to me at least, to see people in the Maori government and in our, in our own government as well. Was there a, a tradition or practice within your community that you'd like to show about that maybe most people in Santa Barbara wouldn't know about? Well, I'm not sure if most people wouldn't know about, but the most predominant one to speak to wouldn't be just even Chumash specific, but many cultures have winter solstice ceremonies or acknowledge winter solstice. And then others acknowledge summer solstice, but I'll speak specifically to winter. That is definitely our most important ceremony that we have. And it makes sense when I read the old notes and what we experience today with droughts and how important it was for my ancestors to pray for rain during our solstice ceremonies. And traditionally, that's what the ancestors did. When I work within the notes, I'm always looking at how we live together. What were the different practices to have peace within our villages? And what I really, really like about winter solstice ceremony is that it was a time and where people forgave. And it was it's genius. It's like, yeah, it's like every year, if I did something Kenny to you, and I, I don't know, 
took your tule boat out to the river and I didn't ask and you got really upset with me or I did something that I wasn't supposed to to speak in traditional times for winter solstice. And let's say we weren't talking, right? I did something wrong to you. I would go to you and ask for forgiveness and I would gift you something and saying, hey, Kenny, sorry, I did that. I want to make things good. We're going to start the new year out in a good way and not harboring that anger. And I really like that about winter solstice ceremony. And, and I think it really speaks to just living in, in a good way and with a good heart and to have peace. Um, not saying it would be easy for everybody or everybody did it, but that was something that they believed in. So when we do our winter solstice um, gathering ceremony, I really like that part about the ceremony. And then I also really like praying for rain, asking creator to give us more rain because we already experienced droughts here. We didn't have Kachuma Lake then, right? We didn't have anywhere that water was just being held. We either had water or you didn't. And when you didn't have water, well, that's when people would die. That's the droughts would be here. The elders were the first ones to go because they're more fragile than the other people. So that's what I really would like to emphasize is that would be the one gathering ceremony that a lot of people throughout the world acknowledge. And that was the most important, not just for setting as Chumash, but all Chumash people and tribes along the coastline and inland. I love that. It's not only an acknowledgement of natural seasons, but that it has a very important interpersonal human element. And even thinking about winter is the time when goods are most scarce, I would imagine, and the time when the people need to band together more than ever. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that that would be a time where people would ask for forgiveness to say, we can't hold on to these grudges. We have to work together. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that tradition. Sure. Would you be willing to offer us a blessing to end our time together as our listeners go into whatever they're doing next? If you would be willing to offer a good word for all of us who call this greater Santa Barbara area home. Great creator. We thank you for this day. I ask for you to lead us all in a good path. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I was really humbled by Nakia's willingness to share about both the harrowing past of her community and the joy with which they seek to recover and integrate older ways of being in connection with the earth and with each other. Next week, we'll have a conversation with Father Pedro Lopez, who's the pastor of Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish. Please subscribe to our podcast to see our latest episodes each week and share it with your local communities. And always feel free to reach out to us at thehumanfamilypodcast at gmail.com.